welcome back to our Diversity on Boards podcast. I'm once again joined by Teresa Johnson, corporate partner at law firm Arnold and Porter. And since we've last spoke, I have to mention that Teresa has been recognised as one of the top 25 corporate transaction attorneys in the publications, uh, the Chambers USA California 2021 publication for annual list of top 100 women lawyers. So congratulations, Teresa. Thank you. you have, uh, you're very welcome. You obviously have a particular interest in diversity on boards um, as an advisor to board directors and your corporate governance work. This podcast um, today, I wanted to focus on how are we actually going to, uh, if we can talk about how we're actually going to change and challenge board diversity, how is that going to be achieved? And um, I know there's quite a lot of change that's been happening in your neck of the woods and wondered if we could talk about that first. Why do you, do you want to just explain the challenges that have um, come about to the California man, mandatory board diversity legislation rules in recent sure. months and, and the, whether it's been surprising that the challenges, um, how, that, how that's played out? Of course. And, um, uh, and hello again. And it, it's great to, to be back uh, together talking about this, this really important topic. And, um, and much has happened since we last uh, spoke on this. So to recap quickly, in California, we have laws on the books that require a minimum number of uh, women on corporate boards, meaning specifically the boards of publicly traded corporations that are headquartered in California. And there is then a companion law that requires that there be a minimum number of uh, directors from underrepresented communities, similarly on those California headquartered publicly traded companies. Since we spoke last, um, there has been uh, progress in the litigation that was brought uh, by conservative groups challenging those California laws. Um, and in uh, this past this year, in fact, um, the California uh, Superior Court, meaning the sort of the lower court, the lower state court, um, heard the challenges for for both of the gender and the underrepresented communities laws, and in both cases struck down those laws. Um, uh, the the uh, so the conservative activists have been successful in their initial um, challenge. Those cases are going to be appealed by the state uh, by the Secretary of State through the Attorney General. So it's not the end of the story. It's just you know the beginning of the the first step. But I think it was notable that the, the uh, legislation was struck down in both instances. It wasn't entirely unexpected as there were questions about whether those laws were gonna be enforceable when they were first adopted, quite a bit of discussion around that. So the, the filing of litigation wasn't a surprise, the, um, you know, uh, in, to some degree even the fact that those uh, laws were struck down wasn't a total surprise. Um, but interestingly, I think I'd frame it all in the in the context of the, the 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 politics of today, and that a lot of this comes out of the a sense of of division between the liberals and the conservatives, and and there's a a broader pushback against what what some people would refer to in in quotation marks woke capitalism, and uh, and and that's playing out in other arenas as well. Um, so we'll see how the litigation progresses on the California cases, uh, and um, and there also is similarly a, 
litigation around a new around the the NASDAQ rule that focuses on board diversity too. Um, it's great to hear that there there is an appeal in process. Great in any way from our legal perspective. Um, I'm interested to to get your view on whether you think the diversity on boards that has been achieved in California um, is going to go backwards. Is is it going to look retrospectively and go to the pre 2018 um, composition, do you think, or do you think that the changes that have been achieved as a result of this um, legislation since 2018 is here to stay? It, it's a great question, and I think that's one of the things that I feel optimistic about. Um, it's, there has been enormous change in the makeup of California boards subject to the laws since they went into effect. And this is even this is in the context of an environment where it was expected that these laws would be legally challenged and there were questions around whether they would ultimately be upheld. And so you could see in a different situation that companies may have decided to hang back and you know maybe not jump into complying, waiting to see whether the laws were going to be upheld. And that is not what happened. Companies got on board and diversified their boards. There's been an enormous uptick in the number of women and to a lesser degree, but still impressive, and, and the number of uh, members of underrepresented communities on the, the companies that are subject to the California laws. And I think the real push for that is because the impetus for diversifying boards is coming not only from the laws, but also and significantly from the investor community, from, from the institutional investors who control a huge amount of publicly traded shares. And I'm, I'm referring to like BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street, you know, the, the large uh, institutions that control you know, vast arrays of, of um, the, the stock that, that's voted. Uh, and then also from other big players in the investment community, like the investment banks are, are pushing on this. And making it a criteria of taking companies public that they have a sufficient amount of diversity on boards. Um, pension funds uh, in, in certain states uh, are pushing hard, for example, in California. The California pension funds are pushing hard on that. Um, so I do think that the boards will, will continue to be diverse um, going forward uh, following the following the California legislation and the NASDAQ rule. And I think that will continue regardless, frankly, of what happens in, in the litigation. I, I will say as sort of the, the, the caveat to that, that there is a pushback against board diversity in the broader context of, of a, a general pushback against ESG. And we're seeing in some instances where that pushback is, is being realized uh, by by pension funds, for example, in Florida and Texas, um, the pension, the state pension funds have announced that they will uh, limit their investments in um, either companies that that or or investment um, managers that do not uh, support fossil fuels or that are focused on um, concerns other than just pure pecuniary return in other words that they won't they won't invest the state's pension funds in um, investments that are focused on something other than just bringing money back so there is that pushback and i think i think in the end boards will remain diverse but it's it's worth being aware of that 
kind of competing force because I think we're going to see that coming back uh, as a um, as kind of the, the the whiplash effect of the the enormous amount of support and attention that's being paid to ESG concerns um, uh, in a variety of quarters. Now that's interesting. I, I actually hadn't heard that before. Is it something that is to do with the current economic climate? In my mind, that's as much as something rather than, um, I don't know. Anyway, that's a, that is really interesting. But in all respects, to have a, a challenge against a push in one direction uh, does achieve some balance and um, you can't, can't just carry on regardless. The, um, that said, in relation to the, the legislation objective achieved, you have um, greater diversity on boards and it does sound by and large it's here to stay. Apart from <laughs> the investment community in that respect, trying to drive change in a different direction. Are there any other things that you hear in the um, community on boards that is giving them concern for um, a dilution of the diversity on boards? I think that the the main concern will really be around, um, to, as as you rate as, as as you've noted, economics. And I think to the extent that we continue to see high degrees of inflation and um, the there's there's increasing pressure on the economic results of companies, I think it may be it may become more difficult for companies to be more focused on ESG concerns if they feel like they're you know, that, that it's adversely affecting their their returns. The, the connection to board diversity there is more attenuated because uh, while there are indications that having a more diverse board, there are some studies that show a correlation between a diverse board and better performance and, and some debates around whether there's a causal connection there, the it, it's, it's more attenuated to have a diverse board than say to be you know, investing in green bonds or, um, you know, using, uh, you know, applying, applying ESG concerns to your supply chain and potentially then making decisions around using suppliers who may cost more, but uh, have a better record on human rights, for example, or, you know, those kinds of things. And so, so I, I think where we're likely to see more, um, somewhat of a backsliding on ESG is going to be more in those spaces where, there's more of a direct connection between between the two, um, but I think one of the things that that's um, that's really going to be interesting about all of this is that there's a lot of interesting legal issues um, in in terms of the way that these challenges are being framed. Um, in the Nasdaq case, which was just argued in the Fifth Circuit, the SEC and Nasdaq, who were defending the case, and the the, the litigation was brought by essentially the same organization. Um, led by Edward Blum, who's a conservative activist who's challenged affirmative action uh, in, uh, for, for Harvard and is, is now, that is now on its way to the Supreme Court. His, his challenge to the NASDAQ law, um, which was heard in the, first, the Fifth Circuit um, a few weeks ago, uh, was focused on equal protection and First Amendment challenges. And one of the interesting legal issues there is that the SEC and NASDAQ in defending against the challenge noted that the, 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 the NASDAQ rule, unlike the California rules, is not a mandate. It's a basically you know, diversify or explain. And so part of the, their focus in defending against it was to say that 
the reason that they're that they framed it that way was because investors are interested in knowing about how diverse a board is, and so they want to uh, provide, make sure that that public companies are providing that information to their investors. And that's a very, it's a it's a different um, focus from the California rules, which are more focused on like it's you know the state has an interest in having a diverse board, and so the arguments that the SEC and Nasdaq were making in those cases are not going to necessarily um, add support to the California cases because they're focusing on something where there's a distinction between the two. So there's a, in terms of how this is all going to play out legally, it's, it's a little hard to, um, to foresee, but I think the business forces are going to continue to push towards greater diversity on boards, full stop. Yeah. So the, well, obviously the NASDAQ method of increasing diversity through the um, disc, basically transparency as to the cons- composition of your board's diversity um, is mirrored in uh, respect of some of the FCA um, mandatory obligations um, in the UK where certain listed companies have to um, either comply with their, it is a voluntary target of um, women and other diverse board members or explain why not. So it, it very much follows the NASDAQ ethos there uh, and very much follows the way in which the um, UK has been implementing its diversity legislation through trying to get compliance through peer, com- peer pressure rather than, mm-hmm. uh, I guess by peer pressure, it's not just other public companies, it's um, pressure from the investment community, which is, is considerable actually and I think that's really moved on the diversity on boards in the UK and um, even though this obligation has only been applied to the FCA um, as I said certain listed companies um, it is something now that's being followed through in the UK by um, the FTSE Women Leaders Review which um, was first published in February 22 and has taken over from the uh, Hampton Alexander Review which lasted uh, through to uh, 2021, I believe was the last one. It was supposed to be 2020, but I think the pandemic pushed it back, um, where they are just measuring where companies measure up against uh, the new target of moving on from the Hampton Alexander Review was pushing a 33% target of women on board. The target now um, from the FTSE Women Leaders Review is 40%. Um, target of women on boards and so they are measuring how um, boards are doing in respect to that and in the top um, FTSE 100 uh, there's 48 companies um, which are meeting it which is is quite impressive to be honest but they've also yeah um, and they've also introduced some uh, additional targets in respect of um, other uh, diversities as well has there been any um have, has there been any any pushback in the uk similar to what we've seen in the us where there are conservative forces you know trying to challenge the idea that that boards should be diverse um uh and and pushing back on the notion that a diverse board uh, helps re- helps achieve better financial results and and you know better performance generally well, I would say generally there 
um, there is an undercurrent of pushback on the basis that by increasing diversity in any respect, you are creating positive discrimination against white men. Um, and that mm -hmm. there has been an undercurrent of that, um, not just on boards, but generally um, over the last 10 years, um, in particular, male dominated sectors, which um, although board, uh, boards are not a sector, um, they have been dominated uh, um, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial here. They have been dominated by white men, which is why the, the whole Hampton Alexander review, yep. a FTSE Women Leaders review has, um, has taken place to increase that diversity and opportunity. So the pushback I, that has been seen is um, concern about positive discrimination against white men and not so much, um, well, not necessarily just in relation to boards. We've seen that happen where um, certain sectors have brought in diversity targets, so similar to the diversity targets that are being brought in um, in relation to boards and um, where organisations are entitled to undertake what's called, so in the UK we call it positive um, action, where you take, uh, you can adopt uh, a variety of measures to try and increase the um, composition of candidates who are available to you to appoint to your board or to appoint to your mm. senior leadership team, because obviously these diversity targets, um, they're not mandatory, but they are set at the, the board appointments, but also at your just below board appointments, your um, executive leadership team, so that um, mm -hmm. you create that pipeline. And so it, it's that tension at the moment in the UK, which is really interesting. And there, there was a recent- That's interesting. Yeah, that there was a, a recent, um, discussion in the press about um, a, a public uh, organisation, well, the RAF having allegedly a policy of positively discriminating against white men um, to increase the diversity of their candidate pool and actually push um, certain candidates above the white men that were sitting in the pipeline in order to meet some pretty stringent um, diversity targets that had been set by by the Home Office in, res in respect of is it the Home Office, I might have got that wrong, but being set up or imposed on the RAF. Mm -hmm. and, and so essentially that that to me sounds like affirmative action is, is the, the way we have looked at it where it, it often comes up in the context for us of, of college admissions and that's the subject of the Harvard case that's, that's being brought by Edward Blum uh, but there's, um, it's the same sort of thing where there's kind of a thumb on the scale for candidates who are diverse and um, uh, and trying to kind of design to try to remedy a history of past discrimination as as evidenced by the fact that there's been such a paucity of, of diverse people on you know in in colleges or on boards or or in in senior leadership um, over time. So it's it, I see a parallel there in terms of the um, uh, the you know, the issues being raised. Um, now RAF, just just to make sure I'm clear, that's the Royal Air Force, is that right? That's right, yeah. Got it. So the so essentially, this is coming up in the context of the military, um, uh, and that's that. It's interesting that it's that it's coming up there. I'm not sure that I've seen the same kinds of of issues coming up in the military here. But but and have, has the RAF um, whistleblower 
you know, publicity then kind of had a, um, a ripple effect and, and had others saying, oh, you know, this happened here. Has it, has it kind of, you know, it's created a groundswell of, of more, more whistleblowers popping their, their hands up and saying, you know, we're saying the same thing in different organizations. Well, I would say not yet, um, but I do see it opening the, the floodgates really for other whistleblowers to feel some confidence in coming forward if they think that there has been a, um, some positive discrimination occurring. Uh, as I said, it's, it's only allegations that are being made by this whistleblower. And uh, what it does do for me is it outlines the difficulties that um, boards will face in trying to meet these diversity targets, even though they're not mandatory in um, mm -hmm. trying to do its recruitment. So where we've spoken with um, certain executive recruiters, they will often say, we have to change the terminology of um, people instructing us to provide candidates for the next board position so that they are providing a balanced candidate group and not meeting a, an objective of appointing a, a woman or appointing a black candidate. It's trying to make sure that board recruitment stays the right line of positive action rather than moving into positive discrimination. So it is really interesting though to see discussion coming into the public domain, whereas I've said before, it's been rumors. They've only been articulated as rumors um, until now. Mm. Well, it, it's interesting too, because um, some of the things that you're talking about with respect to how the how the candidate pools are, are are put together and then you know who ultimately gets the gets the brass ring in the California litigation about the board diversity laws one of the interesting things that came up which was somewhat of a surprise in the way that the decision was framed is that the judge in knocking down the diversity law um, took the position that the that the the way that the legislature looked at the law and looked at how to the reason for, for making the law was to kind of compare the composition of, of corporate boards to the population at large, like, you know, the looking at it kind of in a, in, a, in a societal level. And the way the court looked at it was to say, well, really what you should have been doing was comparing the sitting board members to the pool of candidates who were considered for the board and whether there was whether essentially uh, there there was ev that suggested evidence of discrimination that of you know ten candidates the white man was always getting selected or something like that and a, a challenge about that is that the, the nature of the board selection process is one that is rather opaque and it's not like there's uh, necessarily kind of a, a pool of candidates that you can point to to say like these people were all considered and we chose this one um, you know the, the the process is often very much um, driven by relationships and informal connections and so there's not necessarily a, a kind of you know like it's, it's not like a job where people apply for it and you could look at the applicant pool mm -hmm. um, and the, the court mentioned I think something about the, that there may be, could be perhaps some benign reason that the pool of candidates tends to skew more towards a, you know, a less diverse group. And, and so to the extent that that occurs, then there's really not the same reason to look at the, um, you know, to be concerned about discrimination. And I think, you know, there it, it, it suggests a rather 
a narrow view of of the way of the, the the way this process works and and the concerns being raised in terms of diversity because the the nature of the board selection process is one that is typically very much driven by networking and relationships and so forth and historically uh, women and members of underrepresented communities have not had the same access to those informal networks that white men have have had and so it's it's changed you know, that that means that that those women and members of underrepresented communities often just don't even get into the room. They don't get into the yeah. the pool of people who are maybe being thought about. So it's a um, it's a it's a it can be a complicated issue in trying to sort of think that through. It's great to have had that um, discussion that being analyzed the candidate pool and how you get into the candidate pool to have been analyzed at such a high level, uh, and that's exactly. The issues that the all of the groups are trying to the pressure groups and the investors are trying to change through their through this activity. Teresa, I, I think um, I think we've got much more to say on this, and uh, we will do in our next podcast. But Indeed. for the moment, I'm, I'm just going to say thank you so much for explaining um, what's been happening in California um, with the legislation. And um, do we have any? Uh, I guess it's too early to say when this might go to appeal. Um, or when that could be heard? It's in process. It's, it's going to take a while. Um, the, you know, the state has announced that it's planning to appeal. Um, uh, the, the procedure is, is such that it's, it's a, a rather um, lengthy process to, in terms of the, I'm not even sure that we know at this point what the timing is for requiring the filing of appeals. Uh, and, you know, this will, this will play out over, the, over a course of years, probably. Um, but what, what's also interesting, too, just to come back quickly on the NASDAQ case, is that the panel in the NASDAQ case was listening to the oral argument did not seem very sympathetic to the, to the, um, the plaintiffs, the conservatives' concerns, which is notable. Um, interestingly, the, the three-judge panel, um, which is, is you know, sort of determined from among the, the pool of judges in that circuit, happened to be comprised of entirely judges who were appointed by Democratic presidents, which is, I think, relatively unusual for that circuit. The majority of judges in that circuit were appointed by Republicans. So it, it, there's, a, there's a little bit of, of um, uh, you know, kind of statistical un, <laughs> statistically unlikely that there would be such a panel. Um, so where I'm going with this is that um, if, if that is, if that panel decides to um, uphold the NASDAQ law, then the, the, there will be rights to appeal. There could be an appeal on bonk, which means to the entire circuit. There then could be an appeal to the Supreme Court. And so I think the, it's worth keeping in mind that the, the Fifth Circuit decision in this case, you know, maybe isn't, the end, isn't necessarily going to be the end of the story. And, and you, you kind of have to look at the, the next pool of potential decision makers to see how that's likely to be uh, determined. So, you know, more to come. And again, that will, that will play out over time. So that'll be an issue we'll continue to watch as, as, uh, as time goes on. Absolutely. And keep the discussion going. <laughs> here, here. Very good. Well, thank you very much for um, taking the time to discuss this again. 